and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Hey, this is Amy. And this is Carrie from The Perks of Being a Book Lover. It is hard to imagine the two of us liking anything more than books, but we also like to feel like we're making a positive difference in the city. One way we'll be doing that is to give during September 17th, Give for Good Louisville. Forward Radio, which broadcasts perks, is part of that giving opportunity. Go to giveforgoodlouisville.org anytime on September 17th and donate whatever you can to help Forward Radio reach its goal of $4,000. Remember, we are listener-sponsored community radio and we rely on your support. Thanks. Our guest this week, Ellen Burkett Morris, has an affection for small things. She says she was born prematurely and was terribly small at birth, and she wonders if this is where her fascination with beautiful things coming in small packages began. Ellen is the author of a book of poetry and a new collection of short stories called Lost Girls. What readers may notice about her stories is that though they are small in length, they are powerful in meaning. Each story focuses on a passing moment in the lives of the girls and women she writes about. Ellen says she loves dipping in and out of a person's story to find the small snippet of time that packs an emotional punch. Lost Girls has been receiving critical praise from such places as the Southern Review of Books, Alabama Public Radio, and numerous book bloggers and reviewers, including the Modern Mrs. Darcy blog. Ellen talks to us about why reading her favorite books as a girl formed her idea that to be a writer you have to be a little like a spy, how the Me Too movement helped shape the final form her story collection would take, and why the superstore Target carrying her book left her a little gobsmacked. It's late August and we've got a guest today who is a Louisville native. She is a writer and poet, and her name is Ellen Burkett Morris. She wrote two books, Surrender and Lost Girls, and Lost Girls, I'm sitting here looking at it in front of me, and we're going to be talking about those books. So Ellen, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming a writer. Yeah, I was born in Louisville, and my father was a writer. And my mother was a nurse. And so I grew up watching him work, which as a kid looked like torture because he was at the (laughs) table with the typewriter. And I was like running in and out, getting snacks, watching TV, going outside. And I thought, oh, that looks so boring. Uh, (laughs) But really what happened was that he was around a lot and, and read a lot and read to us and books were everywhere. And I just soaked that in. And I did things like I wrote stories when I was a kid. I still have my first story that was on lined paper and bound with a ribbon. Then I worked for my high school newspaper. And then I tried to pursue a career in communications and spent like 10 years as an adjunct teaching public speaking and 
group process and interpersonal communication. And then I really figured out that I love to write and I wanted to write. And so I went ahead and started to find jobs that would allow me to write. So I was a freelance writer for a long time. I worked for the business newspaper for about a year before I figured I really couldn't stand it anymore. (laughs) When I was in my mid-30s, I said, oh my God, if you're going to do this, you've got to do it now. Totally afraid of failure. And I just plunged in. And so that's what really got me started with creative writing. You mentioned that your father wrote detective or crime fiction. Yeah. He had a detective that he created, Michael Reinhardt. And the the two books he published were set in Louisville. And so that was a lot of fun. Those were in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see him go through that process, get that out there and seeing people in the community excited for books that had a Louisville-based detective. So I was envisioning when you were talking about being a kid and seeing him at work, I'm a freelance writer myself. And, you know, I was picturing you seeing him like tearing his hair out and having writer's block and stuff like that. So did he ever talk to you about some of those challenges or was it primarily you were like, oh, you're just sitting there doing nothing. I'm outside having fun. Yeah. You know, a lot of it was, it looked like homework to me, (laughs) uh, which is kind of funny, but he was pretty forthright about his own struggles with it, about procrastination, about laziness, which he sort of painted as a family trait, (laughs) 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 which was pretty intimidating. But you know, because of the career that I pursued and I ended up spending time working on deadline, I actually am very disciplined about my practice. And as a result, result of that, fairly prolific in terms of creating short stories and other kinds of work. And and it's because every time I start to want to slack, I remember how much I disliked being in that corporate environment or how much I disliked writing about buildings Mm -hmm. for the business paper. So it's a great motivator. (laughs) So what kinds of books did you like to read when you were a kid? Oh my gosh. Well, Harriet the Spy was a huge one for me. I loved it because she was what most writers are, which is a spy. You know, she was looking into the world, other people's windows and trying to figure out what their lives were like. And so that was a huge one for me. I also liked it because there was a lot of stuff about her own emotional development and what it's like to feel outside of the center of things. So that was really good. A lot of Roald Dahl, James and the Giant Peach was something that I loved loved a lot. And Charlie and the Chocolate Factory were big books for me. And and then I remember quirky books like my dad got me this book called Arabelle's Raven about this girl who had this really irritating bird. (laughs) He would often get me these books that had to do with children who were sort of um, troublesome. (laughs) I didn't know if he was trying to tell me something or not, but you know, I really, really always love to read and, and still have a great affection for like that whole middle grade area of writing. You know, I think there's beautiful, sensitive work going on there. Kevin Hinkie's that his stuff. There's beautiful stuff that's out there for kids that a lot of grownups don't know exist. I know for myself, I read partly because I teach middle grades, but I read a lot of middle grade work. And just because they're not 500 pages and they're written for 12 year olds, sometimes some of the the best books I've read are middle school books that resonate. I do think that adults tend to feel about middle school books the way they sometimes feel about middle middle school children. Right, right. Oh my gosh. So true. And there's beautiful stuff, as you said. 
So talk to us a little bit about your new collection of short stories. It's called Lost Girls, and it's unified somewhat by theme. So all the stories take little snippets of different women's lives. And sometimes they're young, sometimes they're older. So when you sat down, or maybe it wasn't something that you sat down and said, I'm going to write this book, maybe the stories came and then you saw that there was that connection between them. But tell us a little bit about when you started either writing it or figuring out that it all kind of went together. Talk to us about that process. Right. So I started an MFA at Queens University, Charlotte, North Carolina in 2012. And I had written some short stories before, probably starting around 2010. So pulling together, starting to write some short stories and all of this. And I had a concept for it. And and it really was that I was telling the story of this male photographer from Boston who had traveled to Vietnam and taken pictures and who came back changed and somewhat empty and decided to travel through the American South to document the bicentennial. And he stops in this little town of Slocum, Kentucky, and it's about the connections he makes with the people in that town. So I had written this collection all around this male photographer, and I'd been sending it, and I'd, uh, I was a finalist for a couple of publication prizes. But the truth is, nobody was in love with this somewhat quiet male photographer. And so finally, I figured out that really the most interesting people in the stories were the women in the stories that he was in, and that he was perhaps the least interesting thing about those stories. So I pulled him out of some of the stories. I toned him down in some of the others, and I set about really pulling together a collection that was about women and girls. What happened was I opened my file folder and started to look, and I saw that I really had enough stories that were good enough to build this collection centered around women and girls. And I will say that you know, the Me Too movement was a big motivator for me. I mean, you know, I started to wonder why in the world was I focused on this male photographer, you know, that classic idea of the male gaze, men looking at women, when in fact the women in these stories were the ones who had really interesting life experience and who had really suffered and grown and learned and supported each other. And so it was like a eureka moment. And I just pulled those together and started to think about what order to put them in. And I had the story Lost Girls. I had written that long before. I'd probably had that for about 20 years. I wrote it first as a dramatic monologue. And I decided that that would be the title story, that it would come first, and that it would set that tone. This idea of sort of losing your way, and yet inherent in that, I think, is that we find our way again. And oftentimes, you know, by digging deep and finding our own resilience, and also by getting assist from the other people in our lives, particularly the other women in our lives. So I was really thrilled to see that that was there. I didn't try to get an agent. Uh, Agents are often really skeptical about publishing short story collections by unknown writers. So I, I sent it to small independent presses and that's how it came to pass. Is it strange when you start looking at the pieces that you had? You know, I was an English major in college, so was Carrie, but we spend a lot of time as English majors looking for themes or symbolism or things like that. And you often wonder, does an author need to put that in there? Or are we searching for it? But it sounds like you wrote a lot of these stories. And then as you're looking back on them, you realize that there is a theme and there is some symbolism. And was that sort of a shocking moment in a way to, to it, think, 
oh my gosh, like I really did put that in there and I might not have even realized it. It totally was. And it was the same thing with my poetry chapbook. Both times I inventoried what I had and was struck to find that there was some sort of thematic consistency there. So with the poems, that book is called Surrender. And those poems I wrote after my dad's death. And they were all about things like saying goodbye to people you love, facing middle age, facing health issues and things that you didn't anticipate, surrendering to the stuff of being an adult, however resentfully and slowly. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to do that. But yeah, so in in both cases, when I sat down with the material, it was like one of those smack your forehead moments. Like, (laughs) oh my God, all of this has to do with surrender or wow, this really has to do with this concept of losing and finding yourself. And so, yeah, it was a total shock. You mentioned just a a few moments ago about Slocum, Kentucky. So as I was reading Lost Girls, I kept seeing that name and, you know, I looked up Slocum, Kentucky and I didn't find any place, but it occurred to me that there are some small little places in Kentucky. So it could be someplace that exists and just isn't on a map. So is it a real place? It's not a real place. And in fact, you know, it's funny because I get this question a lot about these short stories. You know, did that happen to you? Is this autobiographical and is it real? And, And really, I'll borrow some details from my life, but really it's very, very fictionalized. But what I've learned in workshops and things, you know, I took a workshop with short story writer, Ron Carlson, who's just brilliant. And he talked about the importance of authentic detail in a story. And he said, if you are going to have a story and it's going to have two Shonies in it that are a mile apart on a highway, you better make sure that these Shonies are unique, that each one is its own unique place. So it really stayed with me that I needed to populate this fictional world with as much authentic detail as I could. I've been born and raised and lived in Louisville, but you know, my mother was from a small town. She was from English, Indiana. And I do think there's something about the idea of small towns, this presumption that everybody knows each other when in fact, you know, everybody's got their own sort of private interior life. That's why I wanted to pick a small town as a setting because I wanted there to be, here's what we think we know about each other. Here's what's inside. You know, I wanted that contrast to be a part of the telling. I just think it's intriguing. I think we're fascinated with the secret lives of other people, you know, their hopes and dreams and fears and and all of that versus what we see on the surface. So that's how Slocum came to be. It's interesting. Sometimes I think that at least for me, a lot of times I think about the idea of anonymity being something that can only really happen in a setting that's a big city. There's a lot of people around and it's interesting. There can be a lot of anonymity, just a different form in a small town. Yeah, it is. And two, I think there's some pressure that's put on people because of the closeness and proximity and that they see each other and they have to see each other. They're part of a community. And that's something you don't feel as much in a really urban narrative. So it was interesting the way that the book was put together because the stories that are based with characters that live in Slocum are interspersed with other stories. And it's sort of like this through line that goes through the book, which I really like the feel of that, that the other stories could hitch themselves to it. But I want to talk about the very first story in in your book. And it's one that's not based in Slocum. It's actually based on a true event that happened in Louisville in the 1980s. 
and anyone who grew up here, I did not grow up here, but Carrie did. And lots of people that I know of that in that age group remember the disappearance of a local teen girl near a mall and she was never found. And so talk about why you made that your first story. And when it happened in real life, did it make a big impression on you? You know, it made a huge impression. I lived on Bashford Manor Lane, which was the street where that happened. And so I lived in an apartment complex and there was a field that you could cross through to get over to the mall where she disappeared. So it felt very much, you know, like it was in my backyard, like it had happened really, you know, right close to where I was living. And it made a huge impression and it was so sad and and tragic and, and I think ultimately led to the creation of the center for missing and exploited children. And I think the thing is, it stayed with me in terms of this idea that when we talk about horrible historic things, we talk about never forget, never forget 9-11, don't forget the Holocaust. And I think that these small losses, these losses like the one that happened when somebody goes missing or is taken like that, not small, but personal losses deserve equal remembrance. And so that was kind of what was behind that story. I wanted to explore how one girl could pay honor and tribute to another girl. And at the same time that I did that, I wanted that character to be complex. So she's got some strange emotions too. She's got some degree of envy in terms of the girl's parents and the attention that's paid to the girl. She feels sort of unseen. And so there's that weird thing in the mix, but ultimately, there's this really strong desire to honor and remember the girl's legacy. And so that's what really drove the story. And I think having written poetry, started to think about images and objects. And so that's why at the end of that story, what you've got is on the girl's 21st birthday, a bottle of whiskey that disappears before morning. That works in so many ways. Ellen, because I was 10 when that disappearance happened, and it was actually 1983 when that happened here in Louisville. And that happened in the summer. And then I remember watching, because I think it was shortly after that, the the movie Adam, about Adam Walsh, who had been abducted, came out that same year. And so reading that story brought back to me so many memories about that palpable fear it was very strange for a very short story, you know, like I think it was three pages <laughs> to take me back to a time <laughs> that I had completely, you know, I mean, the, yeah. it's just not something that I think about. So right. it was pretty amazing. Okay. Speaking of, you know, the eighties, a lot of your stories seem to be set in an eighties, late seventies feel to them. Right. So talk a little bit about why that was the time period that you chose. Yeah, I think that's purely because that was the period in which I was growing up and I was a kid and tapping into the memories of that time period for myself. So some of the stories will have particular pop culture references, watching Sonny and Cher on television and things like that. And those are really drawn from my own experience. I had a best friend that we'd get on the phone with each other and watch television together and make comments about things and do all of that. And so it was easy for me to recreate that fictional world for characters that age in a time period in which I was a kid. It was just an easy go-to for me to do that. I mean, I think that was a large part what drove me, you know, and then come to understand that readers really love 
pop culture references. There are certain things that really draw readers in, and that's one of them. Sex is the other one. (laughs) You know, I took a poetry workshop one time, and I remember the person who, and I can't remember who said this, but they said all poems are about sex and death. (laughs) Okay, there we go. Wipe your hands. We're done with that one. Figure that one out. So I, I do think that those kinds of things just hold inherent interest for people. And that was a big part of my making that choice. I think it's like an instant nostalgia when you have pop culture references in there. Someone refers to a candy that you used to eat when you were a kid and maybe they don't make it anymore. And suddenly all those memories flood back to you. And I I think that might be why people love that. It's the same reason why when you go to like a vintage market or flea market and you see something, you know, that was in your grandma's house. So like a particular dish or who knows what, you know, maybe she had that tablecloth and it just brings back all these memories flooding to you. So I love pop culture references. I noticed when I was reading, this is the one that I specifically marked, the one in the story Skipping Stones, where it mentions Stewart's. Yeah. For me, that, I was like, Stewart's! So a lot for of people times, who don't know, what is Stewart's? It was, it was a department store. Fancy yeah. one downtown. You know, it for me, like, that brought it home in a way that television reference or whatever, because It just felt different. Or sometimes writers, if they want to talk about a place, they sort of mention the big places that everybody knows about, you know, whether you live there or not. They might mention Churchill Downs, but lots of people have heard of Churchill Downs. But if you grew up in a certain time period in Louisville, you would have known about Stewart. So I thought that was really cool. Well, that was really fun because my mom used to take me and my sister shopping there. And so right away, it was a special thing. So I wanted to designate how special this dress was that her mom took her to Stewart's to get it. So I'm curious about where the ideas for your stories come from. Do you often start with just an image or an object? I mean, I'm sure they come from all different places, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's different for every story, but I'll pick a story that I think is kind of interesting because it started one way and then kind of morphed into something else. So the story Religion, which is about a virgin who joins a breastfeeders group accidentally and decides to stay. Uh, That story began because I wanted to explore the idea that social groups function like cults sometimes, you know, like you get in them and you feel like you need to follow the rules and they're prescribed methods of behavior and there's pressure to behave a certain way. And I'd heard that about La Leche League stuff from friends. You know, if you weren't successful breastfeeding, you felt like a failure sort of thing. And so that was the idea that I started with. Let's have her enter a cult of another sort. But it's so appealing there that she stays, even though she's got every reason in the world to get up and leave. She's a total imposter. But these people are so warm and lovely. And what she sees in the room, she's so lonely that she just can't help herself. She comes back. You know, so I started with this broad concept, but really what I ended up with was this story that was satirical, but also very sad, all about loneliness. And it was the loneliness that came out, not the cultishness. That was what took over once the character was put in the situation and began to act and react. So that's interesting. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, you try to be open to what comes. You try to be open to what shows up in the story. And the last story, Swimming, was sort of an experiment. I thought about that idea of voyeurism. And I thought, well, what if we had a situation where these two people 
were in each other's orbit, but never really dealt with each other. But they were in each other's orbit in a somewhat intimate kind of way. And so I thought I'm going to slice up their lives at various points, and I'm going to intersperse their life experiences and have them come together in this hardware store at the end, having this interaction. So sometimes it's experimental like that. So that brings up an interesting point uh, just about short stories in general. This is a a fairly slim book. You can easily read it in a day or two, but it really packs a punch. And some of your stories are only two or three pages long. So how do you go about creating something powerful in a smaller space? And do you find that you can do things in a short story that maybe you couldn't do in, in say, in a novel? You know, I I think without a doubt you do things in short stories you can't do in a novel. With a short story, you get to decide when you dip in and when you jump out. You get to decide when you enter and when you exit. And you get the opportunity to focus on peak moments, which is what I love when I'm reading. You know, those really powerful moments. I'm the kind of person who, if I'd go to church, I'd be sitting there, I'd be a little bored, and I'd think everybody around me is probably having a religious experience. (laughs) (laughs) Right now. So with short stories, you're able to really get that religious experience. You're able to get that peak moment, you know, and I love that. And it it, it sort of plays to my weaknesses. I don't love scene setting and I don't love a lot of description. I mean, I'll do some, but, but I don't love doing that. And so in some short stories, you know, I can get right to it as quickly as I want to. And I think that having been a poet, get these tools for compression, like certain images, picking just the right word, you sort of hone your skills at compression because poems are such small contained vessels. For me, I think it is a function of that. It's a function of my work as a poet, perhaps my own impatience (laughs) on some level, that desire to dwell in the really intense moment. Those are the things that really draw me to short stories. You had mentioned your book of poetry, Surrender. What was it that made you decide to take the leap? to short stories. Was there anything in particular? I think the thing is, I really don't ever want to limit myself in terms of genre. And I think that what happens when I'm writing is that something tells me what it is. So I I wanted to write an essay about me and my father watching the Rolling Stones on Saturday Night Live when I was a kid. And Mick Jagger goes over to Keith Richards and starts licking his lips. And my father freaked out. He just thought it was the (laughs) grossest thing. And I, I sat there and I thought, wow, something exciting is happening right there. So I thought I was going to write write this essay about the generational divide. And instead, it became this poem called The Divide, where, you know, where I mentioned somebody listening to the shadow on the radio and how that was their version of something that they were into. And then watching Saturday Night Live with him and our totally opposite reactions. And I really let the stuff tell me what it's going to be. I let the work sort of guide me as to what it's going to be. So by writing The Divide as a poem, I got to put in the shadow. I got to put in the radio. I got to put in Elvis's voice trickling like sweat down a glass of iced tea. I mean, I got to do all kinds of stuff that wouldn't have worked in an essay. I sort of love that idea of writing and sort of the mysticism of it. I mean, you often hear about writers say, well, the characters told me what was going to happen next or told me where the story was going to go. And that seems to be what you're saying in a way, not so much about your characters, but that the story sort of tells you what form it should take, whether it be a poem, an essay, a short story. Yeah. It's really interesting. 
Well, it's certainly worked for me. And, and so now I have a couple of novels in, in the works and we'll see how that goes. But these were definitely things that needed to be told at more length. So your book has been receiving a lot of critical praise and I'm sure you're thrilled about that. But you had mentioned on social media that you were geeking out to seeing your book available for sale at Target. And Target is such a touchstone of middle-class America, especially for women. So tell us a little bit about why that was so important for you. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I I guess I was doing the online search that people do when they have a book out just to see what's getting noticed, what's on Google, what shows up where. And then I saw that it was available at Target and I just felt gobsmacked by that. And, (laughs) and, you know, I I think there are a couple things going on there. I'm sure there's a part of my brain that was like mass marketing or, you know, lots of people go into Target. Woo! But then there's also this thing, I mean, the role of Target in my own life. You know, I don't go there now with the global pandemic, but Target was a place I would escape to, you know, on afternoons when I needed to take a break and I would just really take my time and go down the aisle. So I'm rolling down the cereal aisle, picking out the fun, unusual cereal, and I'd roll through the candy aisle and I'd pick up the things that I wanted there. And then I would end up in that aisle with those books and just always felt like such a treat just to cruise the Target and pick up all this stuff that I really didn't need but that felt good. Or you pick up the boring stuff that you need and then you go roll around and find the fun stuff. So yeah, it was really a ritual for me. So there was a great deal of satisfaction in knowing that they carry. (laughs) It's kind of funny. You had said that the stories tell you what form they want to take. Well, they say the same thing about Target. Target tells you what you need to buy. (laughs) Never heard that, but I need a (laughs) t-shirt. So what's your next project going to be? Okay, well, right now I'm I'm sort of polishing up and also sending. I've got a novel that's told in alternating points of view between the mother of a son with past life memories, a modern day mother whose kid remembers being in Vietnam, and the soldier whose memories the kid remembers. And so trading off chapters between those two. And that started, I heard a story on NPR about people with children who have past life memories. I was fascinated by it. I did a story. I took it to the Antioch Writers Workshop. Erin Flanagan, the wonderful instructor there, said, I think you could up the tension here. I think this needs to be a point of contention between the parents that this kid is having this experience and they see it differently. So I did that. Then I had a short story. It got published. And then I thought, oh my God, really, I think this needs to be something bigger. And that's when I started to incorporate the soldier's experience in there as well. So I'm sending that out. And then I've also got a first draft, I think a very solid first draft of a novel about a young female astronomer who goes to Hawaii on fellowship and leaves behind her mother in Cleveland. Her mother has ALS and they're very, very close. There's a lot of tension there. She gets over in Hawaii and she gets embroiled in some of the local protests, some of the people protesting the placement of telescopes on mountaintops. And so uh, that's a book that I really think perhaps has some real commercial potential. So I'm pretty excited about it. Those both sound really interesting. Has it been daunting when you have written poetry and short stories for most of your writing life to then go to a novel? So daunting. And (laughs) so that alternate structure, that really freed me up because I could just, I just write it page by page. And so I could write her story 
and then I could take a breath and step away. And then I stepped in and wrote some, a little bit more of his story. And then I took a, took a break and stepped back in. I compared it to chipping away at a mountain with like nail scissors. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it felt like for me. Now the second book writing that was much more pleasurable. I was doing all this Hawaii research and there's a hot surfer in there. And the whole thing was just a whole whole different deal. But the, but the first one was really, it was like, Oh my God, am I going to make it? So it's just a completely different thing. And yet, you know, as Anne Lamott says, you just do it word by words. You know, there are books that are considered novels, but they're really almost like interconnected short stories. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of Welcome to the Goon Squad by... A Visit. A Visit, a visit. from the, oh, sorry. Yeah. A visit yeah. from the Goon Squad. I can't think of the author's name. Oh, Jennifer Egan, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, they're all sort of interconnected a little bit, but they're all can stand on their own as well. And I actually love book connected short stories like that. Okay. It, it doesn't sound like that's exactly what you're doing, but in a way, that's how you're thinking about it. It yeah. sounds like, like yeah. chapter by chapter and, and alternating voices. Yeah, it's it's a strange hybrid form, and I've yet to figure out if it actually works, but I guess I'll let the marketplace render judgment there. <laughs> are there any short story writers that are favorites of yours? I, so because of the work that I do for AuthorLink, where I interview writers, I'm, I'm reading a lot of contemporary novels and not a lot of short story collections. I mean, you know, it would seem obvious for me to say Elizabeth Strout, but I'll say it anyway, Olive Kittredge, which really was novel and stories. Just yeah. completely blew my mind. And it, it sort of took what Sherwood Anderson had started and made it into something else entirely. So beautiful, so deep. I was just sort of stunned by, you know, I started off reading really disliking Olive's character, thinking she was so prickly and awful. And by the end of it, Elizabeth Stroud has her laying on a couch looking out a window. If I could have crawled up behind her, and held her on that couch, I would have done it, you know, and I just thought, holy moly, what did she just do? How did I get to the place where I now love and have compassion for this character, this horrible prickly character? You know, she's definitely a huge favorite of mine. I read that a long time ago. I'm going to have to go back and reread it, but I will say reading your book of short stories, and I really loved it, and it made me want to read more collections of short stories. I haven't read them in a long time, yeah. and I, I'm, I really enjoyed it. I, I feel like I don't have to set aside an hour to read a novel. If I just have little snippets of my day, I can read a short story or two. So anyway, thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about what we're reading. We are back with Ellen Burkett Morris, and we're going to talk about what we're reading. And so, Carrie, usually we talk ahead of time, and and I actually have no idea what you're going to talk about today. So what have you been reading? Well, you just forgot because we oh. did talk about it. She's been she's been busy editing, and that's what happens. We we have a conversation, and it gets lost in all the editing time when she's holed up in her office. So I have been on a little bit of a tear the last... I don't know, three or four weeks. You had read a book by this author, Mary Roach, a while back. The book you read was called Gulp. Yes. And it was something like Adventures Along the Alimentary Canal or something like that. 
Well, one of my neighbors was getting rid of some books, and uh, the book is called Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. So that's by Mary Roach as well. And that is totally my jam. I love stuff about death. So I found this book so fascinating. I read it super quickly and loved it. So then I was like, oh, you know, I really like Mary Roach as a writer. I I think I'm going to get another of her books. So then I got from the library a book that she wrote that's called Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. I will say that I liked the book about cadavers better, which I think says less about Mary Roach and more about my personality, unfortunately for my husband. But so her books are what you might call narrative nonfiction or creative nonfiction. You know, she's talking about science or talking about biology, but she's doing it in a way that sounds like a story. It's not just like straight up facts or straight up dates or straight up names of researchers. There's a lot of humor, description, just a lot of the things that we love about narrative stories you can find in this book. So I wanted to share, I marked off a couple things and this is the kind of stuff I was cracking up. And every time I read this, I crack up even more. So she has a chapter in the book Stiff where she's talking about where the conscience of a person lies. And so like the ancient Greeks thought one thing and Babylonians thought something else. So she's talking about how they used to think they said, you know, consciousness is in the heart, and then some people thought it was the brain. Did I say conscience? I meant consciousness. But it was, I think, the Babylonians who believe that the spark, the essence of what makes a person a person is found in the liver. And so she said that with classical Greece, the whole idea of the spark of what makes a person a person being in the liver went away. Most of her humor, or at least the stuff I end up cackling over, comes in her footnotes. And so she says, with the rise of classical Greece, the soul debate evolved into the more familiar heart versus brain, the liver having been demoted to an accessory role. And then she says, we are fortunate that this is so, for we would otherwise have been faced with Celine Dion singing, my liver belongs to you. (laughs) And movie houses playing, the liver is a lonely hunter. (laughs) And so... Our book club had read The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, I think, last year. And so when I read The Liver is a Lonely Hunter, I just lost it because mixing science and book humor is what I'm all about. And then I have to share something from the book Bonk. I'll pick the one that's more PG. There was one that I probably can't read on the radio. But she's talking about how researchers, of course, have used rats to study the dynamic of sex and reproduction. This is a chapter on female orgasm. And she says, if it's any solace, even female rats have trouble focusing. I give you a sentence, my favorite sentence in the entire oeuvre of Alfred Kinsey from Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. Cheese crumbs spread in front of a copulating pair of rats may distract the female, but not the male. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I could probably be distracted by a nice cheese board that was sent to the side. (laughs) So anyway, you know, I mean, you definitely... 
you have to enjoy science. You have to, at least with the, the book about cadavers, you know, if you're squeamish in any way, don't read it. But I just think that she's a really fun writer who takes topics that could be extremely boring and just puts a lot of her unique personality into them. So I, I'm a big fan. Those are some of the things that I've been reading. Ellen, what have you been reading? Yeah, I, you know, I, I just finished a while ago, Lake Life by David James Plassant. And he's a fantastic writer. He's a great short story writer as well. But this is a, his uh, debut novel. And it's a story about a family, the parents and their sons and their son's spouses, and a particular weekend at a lake that's been their lake house forever. And each of the couples is in a moment of crisis. One of them has an unwanted pregnancy. The other one is grappling with issues of monogamy. And the other one is trying to heal from an affair that happened. And just got them at this lake. It's three days in their life. And the pressure is on as they try to sort these things out. It's it's really beautifully written. It was a really, really nicely done book. And it's a, a summertime read in that they're on vacation. But it's, you know, it's certainly not light and You'll enjoy watching them as they struggle to reconcile all of their issues. <laughs> so a kind of a book befitting our times, I guess. You know, the, the other thing I was interested in mentioning to you guys, you mentioned if I'd be interested in recommending a book that's not as well known as I think it should be. And there's a book called Tell the Wolves I'm Home by Carol Rifka Brunt. I don't know if, if either of you guys have had a chance mm -mm. to read this one. I have heard of it, but have not read it. Oh my gosh. So this is 2012. I thought it was really a beautiful story. And it, it's about a 14-year-old a girl whose uncle dies. And he, he was a really well-known painter and they were very, very close. And it involves this legacy that he leaves for her. And just a beautiful story about love and about struggle. And it's it's just one that stayed with me for whatever reason. So Amy, what have you been reading? Well, 2012 seems to be a popular year because the book I'm going to talk about today also was published in 2012. But it's so funny, we were discussing this earlier about children's books being some of the best books, but I'm a person who just until recently, I didn't want to read children's books unless I had a child to read them with. I obviously read them with my children, but it wasn't something that I was particularly interested in doing without a child to read it with. I just felt like I wouldn't get as much out of it as I would an adult novel. And then something changed, I don't know, in the last year or two, and we read several middle grade books in our book club. And I loved several of them so much that I started adding middle grade and young adult books into my regular rotation. And I have found that some of my favorite books have been books meant for those age groups. And especially during this pandemic, children's books have been a palate cleanser for me mm -hmm. uh, between adult reads that seem really heavy. So recently I picked up the One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate. And this book is a middle grade book and it won the Newbery Medal for Outstanding Children's Literature in 2012. And it is the story of a very special silverback gorilla named Ivan who was captured as a young gorilla shipped to the United States where he is taken in by a man named Max who displays him at a roadside attraction along with an older elephant named Stella and there's a stray dog who hangs around, and his name is Bob. And he spent many years in this cage at what they call the mall. And now he's no longer a cute baby. He's an adult gorilla. And he doesn't draw the large crowds he once did. And the weird mall is not doing well financially. And Max is cutting corners to save money. So to try to pull in more crowds, Max buys a baby elephant named Ruby. 
Now, Ruby is sad and she misses her family, but Stella, the older elephant, mothers her and makes her feel not so alone. But Stella wants a better life for Ruby than the one that she's had. And so she makes Ivan promise to help Ruby find a better life. She doesn't want Ruby to be the one and only, like she and Ivan are the one and only. So Ivan thinks of himself as an artist, and he often uses clay or mud to paint things on the walls of his cage. And Max sometimes will give him finger paints and paper and whatever he produces is sold in the gift shop. So Ivan and Bob hatch a plan to help Ruby that involves his art and a little girl named Julia who comes to visit every day when her father, the janitor, comes to work. So this story really just gutted me in the best kind of way. (laughs) It gives you all the feels. You're mad, you're sad, you're happy. There are parts that are funny. Uh, It's all about friendship and being lonely and learning how to be you. And one of the things I loved most about it is the way it's written. And it goes back to a little bit to our other conversation we were having about being able to condense words and the sparseness of some writing being powerful. And this is very sparse. And it's from Ivan's point of view. And he is really a gorilla of few words. And each page (laughs) may only have six sentences on it. Uh, with large spaces in between. But as we've been talking about today, that succinctness of Ivan's thoughts distills his feelings into really powerful statements. And there are just some really great lines in here. Like there's one where he's thinking about if he could be with other gorillas. And he says, is there anything sweeter than the touch of another when she pulls a dead bug from your fur? (laughs) (laughs) You know, thinking about the way primates groom each other, you know. And he also says, gorillas are not complainers. We are dreamers, poets, philosophers, nap takers. <laughs> um, anyway, I just really love this book so much. I read this book for a few reasons. One, there's a new Disney Plus adaptation that just came out. And I wanted to see it, maybe. But now that I've read the book, I'm not sure if I want to see it because I'm worried they will ruin it. The previews show that they've added more animal characters. And while I don't necessarily think that an adaptation has to follow a book exactly, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Also, there's a sequel out. So Sam Miller, our bookseller friend from Carmichael's, told us about it in our summer reading episode. Uh, the sequel's called The One and Only Bob. And if you remember, Ivan's friend, the stray dog, is named Bob. And she said that the second one is just as good as the original. It's interesting because this story is based on a true story of a gorilla who this happened to. And he went from being in a roadside attraction to then living in the Atlanta Zoo. So I gave this book five stars. And to me, it's a must read. And it's great for adults, too. Now, You know, I'm not big on giving trigger warnings, but I mean, I'm an animal lover and it made me feel sad, but it didn't bother me. But there are some very sad parts with animals in it. So if that's something that you don't think you can get past, it may not be a book for you. But I just I just thought it's so touching. I had mentioned to Amy that another that it's been years and years since I read The One and Only Ivan, but one that I read recently that I, I told Amy, I'm like, it's a really good story, but it just that same feeling. But it's Pax. Mm. which is about a fox and I cannot remember the author's name, but it's really, really good. But oh my gosh, something about those books with animals just hits you where it hurts. I've read the one and only Ivan and I'm going to totally look up that sequel. Can't wait to read that. Yes. One and only Bob. And I think Bob looks a little bit, I've seen pictures of your new dog and I imagine it looking a little bit like your dog, like a scruffy little terrier type of dog. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. All the more reason for me to rush and get it. (laughs) 
All right. Well, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, Ellen's going to give us her top five. We are back with Ellen Burkett Morris, and we are going to be asking her her top five. So number one, you say that you like small things. Tell us one of the top small things you delight in and why. Oh my gosh, I have this piece of carved rice that my sister brought me back from Chinatown in San Francisco. And it's just this beautiful little piece of rice that has the figure of a person and then a symbol next to it. And it's tiny and beautiful. And part of what I like about it is that I don't know what that symbol means. Like I know it means something, but I don't know what it is. So it's also mysterious. That amazes me that you, that someone could carve something on a piece of rice. I mean, I've heard of this, but I guess I'm to the age now where I have to wear readers in order to see anything. So, I mean, do you have, do you have to use like a microscope? I mean, or a, not a microscope, a um, magnifying glass to to see it? I'm really nearsighted. So all I have to do is take off my glasses and put it right in front of my face. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I can see it pretty well. Yeah. But I know it's tiny. It's super tiny. So do you have other small things that you collect? I have like a shadow box with a bunch of little tiny things in there, like a tiny can of Budweiser and, and a <laughs> tiny uh, tiny convertible and silly little things like that. Those little worry dolls that were really popular back in the 70s and little stones and, and a little tiny bottle of Old Spice. <laughs> so yeah, so I just find little stuff and I'll just stick it in the shadow box and you know, I was born prematurely and I was way, way underweight. And so I'm wondering if there's something about me and tiny things. I'm just like, maybe that's why I love them. Because I was one once. I am no longer tiny, but but I was there once. I was small. <laughs> so how do you display the rice? Because I'm imagining like I would accidentally sneeze or something and it would fly out of my hand and then it would be gone. <laughs> it's in a little box. It's in a tiny little box that has a piece of glass over the front of it so it's ellen proof in terms of me dropping it or losing it which is so good because i would do the same thing yeah oh my goodness okay well so i've been frantically googling carving on rice grain and like that's a thing so i'm gonna go down this hole after we're done recording so question number two you have an interest in all things english irish and scottish as do i is this due to your genealogy how did this fascination begin and what is the top thing that you'd like to see or have seen on a visit You know, I think it is due to my genealogy. My ancestors were Irish. They lived in Ireland on the land of a a British lord, and they were clearanced off the land when the potato famine came and sent to Canada. And so I know all this because my sister reconnected with a cousin, and he's done this elaborate family history. So in the course of researching the family history, I actually got in touch with a local historian in County Wicklow in Ireland. And the year after my dad died, my husband and I went over to Ireland. We saw my top spot, though it's not a tourist spot for anybody else. This historian took us by the field where my ancestors would have been tenant farmers. Yeah, he showed us the land. We also went onto the porch of the now empty house that the British Lord had owned. And he said, you would not have been allowed on this porch with your lineage. And then he took us 
to the ruins of the parish church that my ancestors went to around the time of the famine. We got to see, you know, grave markers and walls and things, and it was all fallen down and walk on that same ground where they went to church, where they got their children baptized. It was the most astounding experience I've ever had in my life. And I was really in the throes of grief. And what it did was it sort of opened up the world to me. I had this sense of the continuity of history. The fact that someday I might be gone and somebody might come and look for me. Somehow it just made me feel more a part of, of just the human story and sort of blunted my grief a little bit because, again, I just got this sense of this wide expanse of time and and being remembered. I guess it's, again, this question of not wanting people or things to disappear, you know? That's an interesting story. There's a book that I love, and I've read it twice. We just discussed it in our book club last month, but it's called American Ghost by Hannah Nordhaus. She's a nonfiction writer, but her family lived in Santa Fe. Her her great-great-grandmother came over uh, from Germany with her grandfather, and they made their way over to Santa Fe and were merchants there. Why she wrote the book was that her great-great-grandmother supposedly haunts this famous hotel that used to be their family home in Santa Fe. And so the the point of her book was to try to figure out, to get to know her great-great-grandmother and try to figure out why that might be the case. But in the meantime, she learned all kinds of things about her family that she didn't know before. And it just brings up all kinds of issues about you know, how do you stay remembered? And to me, it was a fascinating, a fascinating book. And yeah, so that's what it made that, that makes sounds, me think of. But that's a great story. That sounds incredible. Question number three, you like to bake, but you also like to do it competitively. So tell us your top story. Tell us about baking for prizes and money. So the truth is actually the baking I've just loved to do as a hobby. But one time I entered a contest Nestle did it and they wanted you to use this mousse mix to make a recipe. And so I just mixed this mousse mix with some cream and heated it up and poured it over a cake and it, you know, it formed a, a ganache glaze. And so I called it grand ganache glaze. And I was a finalist for this thing. And they sent me a certificate to Sarah Latab and, and, you know, they sent a press release out and I, ended up going on morning television, like the 6 a.m. shows, local shows, and mixing up this cake glaze. I remember I was on there with Heather French Henry, and she was like, am I stirring this correctly? (laughs) (laughs) It was so silly. And I just, you know, you just mix this mousse mix and some cream and pour it over a cake. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm a genius. I'm a genius. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of fun. It's just, I'm just game to enter contests. How many contests have you been in? Oh my gosh. You know, the truth is I I bookmark contests on my laptop and I enter 10 to 20 contests a day. And over the, oh my gosh, over the course of 20 years, I've won, I won a Visa gift card from the Tony Danza show back when that was a thing. I won five trips from the Live with Kelly and Regis show. Kelly and Ryan, well, it's some combination of both of them over the years, including a trip to Hawaii. I've opened my door to find that there were like a box with an Apple TV in it because I entered a some kind of a contest on the Discovery Channel. So it's been incredibly lucrative. 
And uh, I blame my father, who was a, a real gambler. You know, he set his books around the racetrack because he loved the horses. And so I've decided that I'm going to funnel all of my gambling mojo. Instead of losing money, I'm going to just enter these free contests and see what happens. And uh, so far, it's worked out pretty well. And you enter like 20 a day. Truth is, I've slacked off since the pandemic. I probably enter about five. And I, I'd say I do it three or four days a week now. But I used to really dedicatedly every day sit down and enter them. And if you use Google Chrome, it pre-populates the fields for you. So it's just like you just start and you just hit enter and it's and you've done it. As I said, it was like my own little gambling addiction, but it didn't cost anything. Wow. That is super cool. It's been wild. It's, it is wild. It's completely crazy. It's gotten to the point where like I would call my husband at work and I'd start to laugh and he'd say, where are we going? (laughs) He's like, where are we going this time? You know? Yeah. So it's been very, very good to me. Now that I've outed myself, they probably won't pick me anymore. But (laughs) Well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I, I might start doing that myself. I think you should. I think you should. So question number four, you've worked as a freelance writer in media relations for many years. What's the top similarity between writing fiction and nonfiction? And do you have trouble moving back and forth between those two? You know, I, d- I don't have trouble moving back and forth between the two. And I would say that the the biggest similarity is that you strive for authentic detail, that you really want to get a flavor. So if you're profiling a person for a newspaper, or if you're creating a character, you really want to get an authentic sense of who they are. And so you seek those details that you think would illuminate that. And that can be hard to do, like in terms of asking the questions. I I know that Amy and I, you know, have struggled with that. And we've gotten better, you know, with doing this show in terms of what questions you ask. I think some people think, oh, you just ask questions, but it, it's a little bit more than just asking questions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I also learned, you know, th- that being comfortable with silence was really helpful too, because if you wait long enough, people will volunteer stuff that they wouldn't normally say. So I do a business profile of somebody and everybody be like, he's a people person and there'd be nothing to it. And then I'd sit down with them and I'd have to really sometimes let it get uncomfortable to the point where they might say something that then really let me know something about them that they wouldn't have said if I had filled the space. So last question, you've interviewed lots of different writers on AuthorLink. Do you ever get starstruck? And who is the top writer, living or dead, that you'd love to interview? And what questions would you ask him or her? You know, I do get starstruck. I had a chance to interview Alice McDermott, who was just so fantastic. And before um, Olive Kittredge got famous and won huge awards, I interviewed Elizabeth Strout, who was just such a kind and lovely person, in addition to being such a talented writer. But I, I thought a lot about this, who would who would I interview? And this whole living or dead question, which just opens the door so wide. <laughs> but the truth is, I'm not pulling up the name of somebody who's been gone. In, in my head, the answer that I keep getting is Colm Tobin, the oh. Irish writer who wrote Brooklyn and some other beautiful books. I think he wrote a book called Nora Webster, if I'm remembering yes, that. Yeah. I read that one, yeah. Oh my mm-hmm. God. And you know, that he's got this lovely, lovely Irish voice and this gorgeous, rugged face. And I'd love to interview him. And the thing I would ask him is, I want to know how it is that he writes his female characters 
with such sensitivity in such a fine way. I, I just want to know how he does that because here he is. He's this huge Irish guy, and he but he writes women so beautifully, and I, I just want to talk to him about it. So he, that's my that's my choice there. Now, for those who may not know, what is author? Link. Yeah, AuthorLink is a site for readers and writers. And so they have a range of services there, but they also run interviews and reviews. I guess I've been working for them, gosh, between 10 and 15 years. And they were just looking for somebody to do these author interviews. And, you know, I, I tend to get jobs and stay with them forever. And so I've been doing that forever. And it's great because I get to pick who I talk to. And so what it means is that I've really gotten to pick the brains of some writers that I really admire and respect. And I've gotten to interview some writers that are published through small independent presses who might not otherwise get any spotlight. And so it's been fantastic. I've learned a lot. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your Monday to speak with us, Ellen. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a pure pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.